0: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We've been here every Saturday, or used to be uh, very very early on Saturday, but now it's 12 noon, uh, since 1987. And we hope to be here for, for, for more, I suppose, because our cause is a very important one. But we need 3CR to put it over, because no-one else is going to listen to those who are promoting public education and taking on the private sector. But um, today is an important day. We want to remind you that we must keep 3CR on the air and it is the subscriber drive day. We are hoping that those of you who are listening will contribute to 3CR and actually become involved in 3CR by becoming a subscriber to 3CR. There are different rates, and we we will find out more about those later in the program. But today is quite a a very interesting uh, session. We want to talk about testing. We want to talk about NAPLAN and PISA, but we want to put them into the context of big business and privatisation. We all know about testing of our children. The big test, of course, is the HSC at the end of schooling, in which the sheep are separated out from the goats. or well, they hope that they're doing that so that the very clever ones allegedly go to university and the not-so-clever ones go elsewhere. Uh, who's clever and who's not clever, of course, is a new question. And that's what we want to uh, point out. But... Our press release, 878, which you will find at www.adox.info, is about standardised testing, which has been globalised and it's big business now linked to privatisation of education. Since 2009, NAPLAN standardised testing has been a requirement for Australian students in years three, that's eight-year-olds, And years seven, sorry, years five, seven and nine. And the Liberal National Government would like to extend it to year one students. That's six year olds. I would have thought eight year olds was a bit much. But its questionable effects have been very far reaching. Many students suffer from anxiety while others cannot see its relevance. It has the effect of narrowing the school curriculum with emphasis upon testing limiting achievement rather than learning. Yet everything from student performance, school funding, teacher pay and performance and the viability of individual schools is increasingly being determined on the basis of the NAPLAN test results. It tends to have a punitive rather than a development effect. Historically, it's like going back into the 19th century, actually, when you had payment by results with testing. In those days, it was the inspectors who often were linked with the punitive effects, which was unfortunate for the inspectors because they were also supposed to help teachers. And that perhaps is why we have lost the inspectorate when the uh, VSTA managed to get rid of them in the 1980s. But I'm not sure that the uh, teaching unions did teachers a favour there. But getting on with the matter in hand. In 2017, the New South Wales government, that's in Australia's most populous state, ramped up the test punitive effects by requiring that year 9 students achieve a high level band 8 in order to qualify for the high school certificate examination. So it was like the old intermediate certificate and if you didn't get through it, then you weren't allowed to go on to the uh, leaving certificate or the, uh, what became the HSC. This is a requirement for university entry, HSC, but it's expected that more than 50% of students in that state schools, predominantly students in working class areas, of course, will have fail, failed to achieve that level. As is the case of the United States and the UK, which has opened up its public education system to similar market mechanisms, these measures have been implemented despite widespread opposition from teachers, parents and students themselves. So the New South Wales Teachers Federation approached some academics up in Queensland to write the Commercialisation of Schooling Report. And it's a very interesting report indeed. Dale is going to tell you about it. Over to you, Dale.
1: Thank you, Jean. The Commercialisation of Schooling Report. The New South Wales Teachers' Federation responded in 2016, 2017 with a commissioned report, uh, the Commercialisation of Public Schooling, whose conclusions are a further damning indictment of the public school privatisation movement. The report was written by Dr. Sam Sellers, a reader in education studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. Dr. Bob Lingard, a professional research fellow at the School of Education at the University of Queensland. Dr. Anna Hogan, a lecturer at the University of Queensland. And Dr. Greg Thompson, associate professor of education research at Queensland University of Technology.
0: So this report, this report, Dale, was written by somebody from Manchester who's got experience in the UK situation, and a group of pretty
1: important academics from Queensland. Yes, thanks. Go on, please. Dog's quote from this report. There has been considerable academic research and literature on the privatisation of schooling set against the effects of globalisation following the end of the Cold War. Research now has moved to focus on commercialisation in schooling as an element of transition to a new phase of neoliberalism reflective of new state structures and relationships between the public and private spheres. The literature documents how commercialization in schooling systems and schools in the global south works largely in respect of low fee for profit private schools, while in the global north, commercialization and increased involvement of large private corporations has worked largely in relation to what Salberg has called the global education reform movement or GERM, which is a nice acronym. It's
0: interesting. Down here in, in the south, in, in Australia, we're dealing with private schools, which we inherited, religious schools. But in the north, that's in the United States and elsewhere in, Austria, in, in uh, Europe, they're dealing with for-profit organisations. They're, they're quite, quite specific about what they're at. They're going to make money out of education and our children. And they're called charter schools in the United States. Uh, so we're part of this. The, the religious schools here are very much part of this global, global privatisation, um, so-called reform mu- movement. The dogs call it a... DEFORM
1: movement. GERM is the acronym. This has seen the introduction of top-down, test-based accountability, the introduction of market competition between schools, the use of private sector managerial practices, and an increasingly standardised curriculum that focuses on literacy and numeracy. We might more accurately of GERMS, as this largely Anglo-American-derived education reform movement has been taken up in vernacular ways in different society. GERMS, with their focus on tests and related accountability infrastructures, have opened up the space for edu businesses to offer a vast array of new products and services at all levels of education. At the same time, we are experiencing the datification of the social world, which has been facilitated by enhanced computational capacities and new capabilities to translate various aspects of everyday life into quantitative data. Data infrastructures have become more important in the structuring and governance of schooling systems and enabled the growing involvement of private commercial interests. The move to big data in the work of schools and schooling systems will also open up further opportunities for edu businesses, particularly in terms of computer based assessments and adaptive learning technologies. The increased role of private companies and edu businesses in respect of these various changes has resulted to some extent from the downsizing and restructuring of the state bureaucracy, first under new public management and more recently through network governance. The reduced capacity of the state has opened up spaces and opportunities for edu businesses to expand their role in schools and schooling systems largely on a for-profit basis. Private corporations have also sought an enhanced role in all stages of the policy cycle in education from agenda setting, research for policy, policy text production, policy implementation and evaluation, provision of related professional development and resources in what has been referred to as the privatisation of education policy community. We have written about this in respect of Pearson and News Corp.
0: So there we have it. We have the privatisation of what goes on in our school rooms. It's not left to our teachers who understand our school rooms. It's not left to our headmasters who understand them. It's not even left to the people in the education department, although more and more those people have no experience of our schools at all, whereas in the past, There was a career structure going right up to the top with the Director of Education that has fallen away. But these people really have very limited knowledge about education, what they have knowledge about, are managerial structures and making money. And they are doing it on our children by testing them and demanding that there is quantification of whatever they're learning, and also narrowing their curriculum and their ability to range widely in their learning. It's a very worrying situation. But we'll have a bit of a break here, and uh, we'll come back to talk a little bit more about what's happening in Australia.
2: Typical of a man in the Western system, like, hello... You know, all stories might, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet, because Invasion Day was the start of the dispossession, murder, massacres, and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So, Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people, and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through, because the genocide continues today. Like, Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground, because he's really ignorant in my view.
3: When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests,
2: Subscribe now.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au/subscribe, or call the station on
0: 94198377. Well, we've been talking about the privatisation of our public systems by the controlling of the testing procedures in our schools. Um, usually up to the HSC, the HSC hasn't yet been privatised, from what I can see. But what is happening in Australia? Throughout the world, there are really big businesses that are capturing the testing procedures in schools which are becoming more and more privatised. It's linked to privatisation and making money in schools, in education. There's always been testing in schools, but a transformation is now quietly taking place within school education. Now, for over a century... Education has been seen mainly throughout the whole world as a function of the native nation state. The nation state looks after the education of its children. But it's become a globalised industry. And that's what we're looking at here in Australia. The expansion of the global education industry is based upon the idea that education is the key means to national economic competitiveness and success. And such success is gauged within a global education marketplace. This global education marketplace pits each nation in a race against the others with comparative assessments such as the Programme for International Student Assessment. That's PISA we often talk about it here, how Australia's falling behind. And we use the facts and the quantitative data from the piece of testing, which is imposed on our schools. And the trends in international mathematics and science study, there's a TIMSS, T-I-M-S-S, and that's used as an evaluative method for identifying the winners and the losers. And Australia, we're told, has been losing. But there's a question about all of this. Standardised tests and test scores have become the basis for identifying, winning and losing nations, as governments slash education spending and dismantle their education bureaucracies. So people who want to privatise can say the public education system is in crisis. Let us do the job. In doing so, they have opened the door to private providers and their edu- businesses to make a fortune from their increased role in all aspects of school education, from agenda setting, research for policy, policy text production, policy implementation and evaluation, provision of related professional development and resources. And if you look at the uh, material of the School of Independent Studies here in Australia, you'll see how they are pushing this constantly now, according to Anna Hogan, who was one of those people from the University of Queensland, lecturing, Review, who was one of the report's authors, that's the Commercialisation of Education report, contractors are used for eight of the nine stages of developing Australia's high stakes test. That's NAPLAN. In 2012, the cost of these contracted services totaled $4 million. And in every state except Queensland, the printing and distribution of NAPLAN was contracted to Pearson. In New South Wales, Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory, the subsequent marking of the test was contracted to Pearson, making that company a central agent of the NAPLAN policy work, minute work. So we've got here in Australia these big multinational testing businesses. And the biggest one of them, well, certainly a very big one, is Pearson, and we've talked about them before. Uh, last month, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the New South Wales Education Standards Authority had signed two agreements with Pearson for marking and reporting on NAPLAN results, worth a total of $51.9 million. And another private company, the Australian Council for Education Research, that's ACER, which is a private company, is currently being paid $7 for each of the 2.5 million students who annually sit its progressive achievement tests in maths, reading and science. That is, we're paying $17.5 million to ACR. Now think of how much, what we could do with that money in our state schools. So we're talking about large swathes of taxpayers' money going to private corporations so that our children can be categorised as sheep or goats. Oliver's here with us, and he's going to tell you about some of the questioning. Uh, Trevor Coble has been questioning the value of pizza tests, and there's been some interesting material uh, recently in the age about how much it costs to actually run the HSC. So over to Oliver.
4: But what do the Australian NAPLAN and the PISA International Tests really tell us? Trevor Kobold of Save Our Schools Australia has recently produced a paper entitled Beware False Idols of Education Excellence, which questions PISA results because they do not take into account either the motivation, interest, or dissatisfaction of students with their schools. So much for child-centred education. Teachers at the front line teaching our children in public schools could have told us the true effects of testing and the progress of their individual students. The cost of higher school certificates. Meanwhile, in the age of 4th February 2021, there is some evidence that at least teachers are receiving some remuneration for marking the HSC, no doubt topping up their inadequate salaries, but their efforts are only worth one-third of the total cost. In 2019, the cost of running the HSC exams in New South Wales alone was $98 million. New South Wales Education Standards Authority, NISA, figures obtained by the Sydney Morning Herald under the Freedom of Information Board show. One-third of the cost, almost $33 million, involved paying teachers to mark papers. One-fifth involved logistics, while exam supervisors cost $8.7 million, and the writing of tests and marking criteria added up to $6 million. Other costs, including IT, administration and human resources, for 29.9 million dollars.
0: Well, isn't that very interesting? The HSC, which um, is the, the pinnacle really of, of secondary schooling, which separates out the sheep from goats, providing the children have been allowed to take it, um, that that is still more or less, um, well, one third in in the hands of teachers who market. but the rest of it as probably, but we're not certain, um, sent out. But there has been debate about the HSC. It's quite interesting. A man called Greg Whitby, who's the head of the Catholic Education Diocese of Parramatta and a critic of the HSC, described this cost as exorbitant. And some components, he said, argued this outdated system of assessment Is gold standard. So why does he want to get rid of it? Perhaps they just want uh, the individuals, uh, uh, the individual private schools to go to their own assessment body. And it would be, who knows who, an old boys network back into the 19th century. Because that's what the public exams were always about. They were about some kind of meritocracy and some kind of um, making sure that people who could do things would actually be employed in government departments. But Mr Whitby um, got a few few bites. Daniel Cullen said, the reality is that the HSC does give us a number that also acts as a somewhat vague indicator of a student's commitment or lack of of commitment to achieving a result that will probably determine their opportunities in the years immediately after leaving school. But as far as giving insights into a student's future potential, capacity to problem solve, level of curiosity and collaborate, it's got zero value. All of these, of course, are critical skills in the work of the 21st century. So the HSC does have limited value. But as a marker of commitment, it is useful. After all, he points out, in 2018, the New South Wales government spent 1.8 billion on consultants. That's privatisation. 1.8 billion on consultants. So he reckons that for 100 million only, the HSC is cheap. But there was another person who commented on this article. Mr Greg Whitby, he said, I'm always interested to hear what you have to say. Considering it comes from someone who themselves hasn't been in a classroom for decades, and then somebody else taking note that he was actually in the Catholic Education offices, if he's complaining about the cost, maybe Whitby should hand back some of the exorbitant funding Catholic Education received, or importantly, clearly published funding allocations and stop the rural and isolated systemic Catholic schools subsidising the rich colleges based in Sydney. Interesting, isn't it? We'll have a bit of a break now and we will be back with some good news stories.
3: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or
4: overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding
3: that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377.
0: listen to to the Dogs program on 3CR. And it's very important to keep 3CR going and subscribe, get involved with 3CR, because if you read The Age this week and the spat on the ABC between Mr Hunt and one of their uh, reporters, you will discover that in 2018 the Liberal Coalition caucus, I'm not sure you call it caucus, but anyway the, 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 the party, voted to privatise our ABC. So if the ABC is in such danger, that leaves us with 3CR as the major independent radio in this state. So we need to keep 3CR on the air at all costs.
1: This is subscriber month, so if you'd like to subscribe and do your annual subscription. You can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or if you're old school, you can give them a call on 03 9419 8377 and then you press 1 to subscribe. Now we'll move on to an article by Marion Wichman, a recent graduate at the age of 53. The title of the article is Never Too Late. When I went to my graduation, the kids were cheering. They were just so proud. A good news story. Marion Witchman always wanted to get a degree, but balancing study with full-time work and care for her six children and elderly mother was not an easy road. Look, I've always been big on education. Having six children, I always believed it was really important that I set an example for them walk the talk I'm always going on to them about the importance of education and I thought I need to show them that learning never stops at any stage in your life they think I'm geriatric I wanted to get a degree it's something I've always wanted to do okay it's later in life but I can still pursue things it doesn't matter that I'm a bit older I've had lots of friends that I've seen graduate from uni I would watch them and think gosh I want that to be me So last December, I graduated with a social science, social welfare degree from Charles Sturt University. When I went to my graduation, the kids were cheering. They were just so proud. I'd wondered whether my mother would still be alive to see me graduate. She's 79. To see her there and be a part of that and for her to see her first child graduate from uni was amazing. If you have a degree, doors open up for you. I'm a welfare officer. I had a diploma in community social work in New Zealand, so I could practice as a social worker there. But when I came to Australia, I couldn't because my qualification wasn't recognised. I love where I'm working now. I work in a hospital and I love working with people. But it can also be very limiting because there are certain things that I can't do. And now that I have the degree, I know that I can go and work somewhere else. And not only that, i get the pay increase that I think I deserve. I don't want to leave. I find it really rewarding. My next job has to be a job that I really, really want to do. I can be selective now. But it was tough. I studied on and off for 10 years to get this degree. I was working full-time, looking after six children, and with families come challenges. I've always been a working mother. My eldest is 30. He has mild cerebral palsy and a mild developmental delay. My youngest is 16. I've got five boys and one girl. Five boys. (laughs) My dad passed away when I was carrying my second child and since then my mum has pretty much lived with me. She's frail now. I have to take her to lots of medical appointments. My husband had a mild stroke in 2019. That was scary. So there was all those sorts of pressures. That's why it took so long to get my degree because I had to defer it and then come back, then stop and come back. There were times when I thought, you know, don't bother going back. I deferred so many times I was thinking, am I ever going to get through this? Then I'd think, come on, you've got to finish this. I'm a person who, when I've started something, I have to finish. I've always given to my family. I do that in my work too. This was something for me. I guess I actually felt unfulfilled. I knew I wanted to practice as a social worker. I still haven't got there. But I felt it was important for me to finish with a degree. That's what I wanted. It's just been hard. I've had challenges with my children in their teenage years, some big challenges to the point where your mental health starts to become impacted because of all the stuff you're having to deal with. Then you go to work and you're dealing with other people's problems. It's like the problems don't go. It's about trying to look after yourself so you can actually look after others. It's a juggling act, I tell you. I feared I wouldn't actually finish my degree all the time. Ask my tutors. There were so many times I was so down that I just basically hit rock bottom. Then I'd have my lecturers saying, come on, Marion, you're almost there. You've got two more assignments to go. You've got this. You can do this. I was just so embarrassed because I don't know how many times I had to ask for extensions. I'm thinking, Uni must think this lady is making this up. I just thought, I'm not going to ask for another extension. I'm not going to ask for special consideration. It's so embarrassing, but they encouraged me. I consider myself a very strong woman, but I really was at a low. I'm not sure whether I could have done it without the support of the university. One night I just decided, you know what, stop focusing on what's going on here at home. Just get that assignment done. In two days, I just smashed it out. I did it and handed it in. I thought, oh, I did it. I got my results and I couldn't believe it. I said, am I really finished? Am I really done? I couldn't believe it. Now I'm considering seeing how long it will take me to do the social work degree so I can be fully qualified as a social worker. I can't believe it. I'm thinking, am I crazy? might be two or three years. I've already started making inquiries. So, as Marion says, it's never too late and you never stop learning through life. Very valuable.
0: I'd say that that lady went to a school where she was taught curiosity and the the desire to learn was not killed in her. And that is the most important thing that teachers can do. And the reason we've been talking today about testing and the way it has been globalised into a big business is because we are in danger of making our children believe that education is about sitting for tests with very, very limited curricula. We want our children to be citizens of a democracy who can live for themselves. But um, that's a lovely story, isn't it? Mm. What a wonderful woman. Mm. And aren't we lucky that still in Australia, there is always a way open for someone who wants to lose? But we'll have a bit of a break, and then we've got another good news story.
4: We've got a common anime the same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel. It's the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
3: Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. And now Oliver's got a story for us, another good news story. Over to you, Oliver.
4: Thank you, Dal. So this story is by Caitlin Fitzsimmons and it's gifted students with a disability prompted to excel by Game Changer. In primary school, Alex Cutcherworth tested as highly gifted but struggled with his schoolwork and learning to read. Honestly, I felt pretty stupid, said Alex, who turns 14 in a few weeks. There are always helpful strategies in place to help me at school, but it was usually not really very helpful. It was like, try harder, that sort of thing. It was not until year six that Alex received diagnoses of dyslexia and dysgraphia. And then in year seven, he was also diagnosed with ADHD and started taking medication. Now in year nine, at a public high school in the inner west, Alex is benefiting from the New South Wales High Potential and Gifted Education Policy, which took effect on the first day of this term. The new policy, announced last June, means all public schools across New New South Wales must demonstrate how they identify and cater for students who have high potential or are gifted. The policy specifically applies not just to high achievers, but also to students such as Alex who are gifted learners with a disability, also known as twice exceptional or 2E, a group that has been traditionally undeserved by mainstream education. Disability in this context includes learning differences such as dyslexia, which affects reading, dysgraphia, writing, and dyscalculia, maths, and neurodiverse conditions such as autism and ADHD. Geraldine Townend, a lecturer and research fellow specialising in 2E students at the University of New South Wales, said it was amazing that the government's policy was one of the first globally to mandate gifted education and specifically include gifted learners with disability. The traditional way of identifying gifted students was to look at their achievement, but this overlooks students with hidden potential, she said. Dr. Townend said twice exceptional students need both learning support and enrichment or extension to reach their potential, and supporting the disability in the classroom is essential to level the playing field. It's like giving a wheelchair to a child who cannot walk or glasses, to a child who needs glasses, she said. Dr. Townend said appropriate extension for gifted children was not a matter of giving them extra worksheets, but ensuring there are outlets for their ability, including grouping them with other students of similar ability or grade or subject acceleration. After spending Year 8 in a class for special needs students where he found it hard to concentrate, Alex is now moving into a class for gifted and high-potential students for Year 9. He said he feels motivated to do well because the school has recognised his intelligence. For his mother, Prue Worth, it is a big relief to see Alex's needs finally being met after he developed behavioural issues and anxiety at primary school and showed signs of disengaging in years 7 and 8. She hopes the policy will help schools see that twice-exceptional students are not a problem but can do well if supported appropriately. An education department spokesperson said schools had a responsibility to address the diversity of students with high potential or who were gifted, including those with a disability. In what is thought to be a first for Australian government schools, the department is partnering with the University of Wollongong to study the prevalence of high potential and gifted students with disabilities and use the research to inform the implementation of the policy. Schools are already required to take reasonable steps to ensure students with disability are able to participate in courses or programs on the same basis as other students under the Disability Standards for Education 2005. However, as the Sun Herald reported in December, fewer than one in five of the state's 165,000 accredited teachers have taken a course on teaching students with disabilities in the past three years. One primary school teacher who asked to be anonymous to protect her employment said her university degree left her ill-equipped to teach students with disabilities and was struggling to find quality training. For the new gifted policy, the department is taking a direct role in training teachers and key staff at each school. The spokesperson said there will be professional learning delivered in stages over four years. The spokesperson said the department was also working towards making the selection process for opportunity classes in Year 5 and selective schools in Year 7 for gifted students with disabilities?
0: All children are gifted. It's not just disabled children and ordinary uh, children who are so-called gifted. All children are gifted. But that was a lovely story because there is a recognition that some children, particularly children with physical and also mental and other disabilities, uh, should be given special consideration and our teachers should be uh, trained to deal with these children. It is a very uh, very highly skilled area, and um, here in Victoria, back in 1980, in the 1980s, they were talking about this, but there's no evidence that we have got on top of this at all. And of course, if we deform our public school system, which is open to every child, in which every child, the good news, the very special news is that in a public system, Every child has the right, whatever their background, whether they are disabled or able, whatever that means, uh, whether or not they come from a poor background, whether or not their parents are billionaires, they have the right to be enrolled in our public system and be given a first-rate education.
2: So it's up to us the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territories. Because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty
3: means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3CR.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Councils around the country will put on <laughs> Disability Day events and Quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool Mm. that everyone you'll hear on here today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people
5: with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins Mm. and why
3: it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think... In, the, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time, and most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa.
2: We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on nine four one nine eight three seven seven. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. On the
4: proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education.
0: There's been two good news stories and the uh, major part of this program has dealt with testing and how it has been used to privatise and globalise education for big business around the world. But we do live in Australia and unfortunately for our public system we have a coalition government in Canberra which is not pro-public at all. They are wedded still even in spite of the pandemic, to the neoliberal theology. And there is a new Minister for Education, an Alan Tudge. So Lindsay Connors, in the conversation, had this to say about Alan Tudge as the Federal Education Minister, what does he mean for our school system? Over to
1: Dale, who will tell you about this. Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, Lindsay writes, Given Tudge's concerns that the Gonski reforms would require Catholic and independent schools to take certain cohorts of students, amounting to an incredible intrusion, it seems he will sit comfortably with the pantheon of previous coalition ministers. In a speech to Parliament in 2011, Alan Tudge said, he was concerned that Labor's Gonski reforms to improve equity in school funding could compel non-government schools to take certain cohorts of students or lose funding. Alan Tudge is now the Federal Minister for Education with responsibility for allocating Commonwealth funding across all schools in the interests of all students they serve and the quality, efficiency and effectiveness of our school system overall. The expression used by Alan Tudge to describe some of these school-age Australian children could have been a slip of the tongue, but for the fact that he expanded upon them. Catholic and independent schools may, for the first time, be required to take these Certain cohorts, which would amount to an incredible intrusion. His short speech had connotations of the Howard mantra that we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Tata's words suggest he will sit comfortably among the previous federal coalition education ministers. Since the 1970s, the priority for the coalition in relation to schooling has been to use public funds to defend and expand the kinds of schools that are free to decide in their own self-interest which students come to them and the circumstances in which they come. If we have learned anything about the damage wrought on democracy by Donald Trump, it is that words matter. And as Ross Gittens recently noted, Trump is more a symptom than a cause of America's economic and social decay, which has undermined the lives of those on the wrong side of the education divide and that the effects of the pandemic will divide along the same education fault line. To the best of my recall, there's been neither a word nor deed from federal coalition leaders in government or opposition from the time of Malcolm Fraser onwards that would suggest they cared profoundly about public schools, the children who attend them and the importance of both for the fabric of a democratic society. What began as indifference to public schools turned into hostility with the advent of the Howard government. Where Labor has generally placed an emphasis on equity and on needs-based funding for schools, the Coalition has focused on increasing the proportion of entitlement-based funding that is provided to schools irrespective of need. David Kemp, architect of the Howard government's SES-based scheme, turbocharged the privatisation of schooling in line with neoliberal political philosophy. This scheme has been a significant contributing factor to Australia, now being one of the OECD's most socio-economically stratified school systems. Between them, the Abbott government, Turnbull and Morrison governments have subverted Labour's original Gonski framework to reflect coalition values. With its amendments to the Australian Education Act, the Coalition has placed a solid floor under the level of Commonwealth funding for non-government schools and an equally solid cap on its funding for public schools. The Gonski principle of a funding scheme that was based on student need and was sector blind has been transformed into one that is sector specific and under the marketing slogan, students with the same need within the same sector will attract the same support from the Commonwealth. The Hansard records suggests strongly that, like most of his predecessors, Tudge will not be interested in taking a broad, holistic view of our national school system, nor to concern himself unduly with public schools. Tudge will certainly be unlikely to emulate one of his coalition predecessors, Simon Birmingham, who was replaced by Dan Tian after having the temerity to point out that some non-government schools were being overfunded. A minister who defends the integrity of a government policy rather than engaging in special deals for political advantage would expect to be respected, but not in a country where there is no level of income from private sources that can render a private school ineligible for public funding from both levels of government. But what of the certain cohorts. In general use, the word has come to mean a group of people with a shared characteristic. In education, it is typically used to describe students at a common grade or age level. Tudge chose not to elaborate on the nature of the shared characteristics of the group of students he considered to be unwanted intruders in his preferred schools. Rather than naming them in Parliament, he resorted to innuendo, It is unlikely he was casting a slur on all year nine students. It's more likely that by referring to these cohorts as intruders into private schools, Tudge had in mind those groups who were and who remain underrepresented in these schools. Was he referring to those students who, through no fault of their own, require more than average support to learn effectively and who are therefore more costly to educate? Was he advocating that the heavy lifting continue to be borne by the public school sector? Or was he trying to send a signal to private schools that he could be relied upon to uphold existing forms of exemption from anti-discrimination legislation, or all of the above? To say the least, it will be dis- disturbing to have decisions about the level and allocation of Commonwealth funding to schools led by a person who divides Australia's school students into those who are the chosen and those who are the intruders or who has a generally divisive us-and-them mentality. We can only hope his earlier words to Parliament were not a portent. In appointing his new minister, our PM gave him a clear brief of improving education outcomes and, in particular, helping younger Australians navigate challenges in a rapidly changing world. The question now is whether in appointing Alan Tudge as Education Minister, the PM was referring to helping all younger Australians. A high-quality school system contributes to a strong democracy by building the capacity of all its citizens to think rationally about their world and to engage in informed debate, including about the kind of school system that mirrors and shapes a just moral and equitable society. So it doesn't look like it's uh, good news, but are we surprised? Well,
0: <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, a very interesting article. Um, Lindsay Connor, uh, Connors is very good at taking the, uh, the high road at the moment, but in my memory of her as a school's commissioner is I don't think she ever wrote a dissenting report And she is obviously very much in favour of the so-called needs policy, which has never worked. The only way forward for public education is to separate private from public and make private pay for itself. That is why, as well as being pro-public education, the dogs are anti-state aid for private schools. But that's enough from us from today and... um, Remember to keep 3CR and the dogs on air and subscribe to keep this independent radio going. It's bye for now.
5: I dreamed I saw joy here last night Alive as you I, but Joe here ten years dead I never died, says he I never died says he In Salt Lake City, Joe says I am standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge says Joe